Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Many years ago, when hitchhiking was common in Europe, my great pal Merrily and I thumbed our way to Rome. We were ignorant and fearless in equal measure, resplendent in our innocence. Mobile phones didn't exist then, and with not even a map between us, we might have expected trouble, but none came. We mostly encountered a succession of kind, generous people, and our protective antennae quivered if dodgy drivers stopped to eye us over. One evening, when it got too dark to hitch, we clambered into some farmer's field and unrolled our sleeping bags. Lying beneath a dark Tuscan canopy with the scent of warm rosemary in the air, we talked and giggled until suddenly, hey, did you see that? What? A shooting star? Look, there's another over there. Where? Where? We didn't know which quarter of the sky to look at. Some stars were tracing a steady path while others just fizzed in a shower of sparks and were gone. The whole sky was a pinball machine lighting up. For much of that night, we lay on our backs, gazing in wonder at the extravaganza taking place above our heads. We two young women lying in that Italian field were linked across the millennia to the ancient Greeks who wove stories around the shapes they saw in the heavens. That night, we experienced a sense of awe at the weight of the vastness of the universe. We felt blessed. I now know that what we were witnessing was an annual phenomenon known as the Perseids. When we see a fantastic light show in the sky, it's actually caused by dust particles falling into our atmosphere and burning up, creating streaks and bursts of light, which we call shooting stars. In 1992, the comet that brings about the Perseids spectacle passed near the sun, and its dust cloud was replenished. As a result, the ZHR shot up. ZH what? It's a term used by astronomers, the zenith hourly rate, loosely translated as the wow factor. Back in 1992, it was 300, whereas now it's down to 60. But not to fret, it is still pretty spectacular. The earliest recorded observation of the Perseids dates from Han, China, in 36 AD, so it is quite possible that they were visible during the lifetime of Christ. Some believe that the star that led the Magi to the stable in Bethlehem was actually a comet. What Merrily and I saw all those years ago in Italy will be there for everyone to see this August. You won't need a telescope to see the Perseids, although this is Ireland and the skies can be cloudy now and then. The best nights will be Wednesday the 11th and Thursday the 12th of August. All will be visible to the naked eye, and as with many meteor showers, the visible rate is greatest in the hours before dawn, since more meteoroids are scooped up by the side of our planet, moving forward into the stream of particles. If you're interested in joining in the nationwide Perseid Watch, Simply go out on any night between the 5th and the 18th of August and tally up how many shooting stars you see in every 15-minute period, starting, if possible, on the hour. Note down the number you've counted, then email your report 
with your name, location, and the night you observed to magazine at astronomy.ie. The Perseids meteor shower, by the way, is named after the Greek god Perseus, son of Danae and Zeus, king of the gods. Perseus grew up to become a hero by killing the Gorgon Medusa, whose head, you will remember, was covered in writhing serpents. If her gaze fell upon anyone, they were turned to stone. But cunning Perseus, keeping his back turned, used a highly polished brass shield as a mirror and thus managed to cut off Medusa's head. So there you have it. If you're eager to know the thrill of stars zooming and plunging in the skies above you, find a spot with no light pollution this August and be transported. If you somehow miss this, all is not lost. There's another light show coming on the 13th of December. The Geminids could be even more exciting, as the skies will be darker and the ZHR will be between 80 and 100. Now you have two dates for your diary, and you won't need tickets. These star-studded shows are completely free. We buried Mickey Boland last winter. You might not have known him. But around here, where Sligo rambles into Roscommon and Leitrim without knocking, he was legend. Singing and dancing was Mickey Boland's currency, and he spent it like there was no tomorrow. He was small in stature and modest in his ways, but when he got his feet on a stage or a mic in his hand, he grew in height and confidence before our very eyes. Mickey was a bachelor who lived alone in the house where he was born in Kilmactranny, County Sligo. He kept her in good order and well-maintained in memory of his late parents. Mickey's father never laid eyes on his second son, having lost his sight before Mickey was born. But by laying his hand on his son's shoulder, he could make his way around our small farm and carry out the daily chores. Mickey even remembered his father cutting the meadow with a scythe swinging in a half-circle and moving slowly forward. His mother was from the other side of Kilrona Mountain, and so his favourite songs were always about mountains. The highlight of Mickey Boland's year was, without doubt, the renowned O'Carolan Harp Festival in Kiju. Each August bank holiday weekend, traditional musicians, singers and dancers flocked to the North Roscommon village to perform, compete and celebrate the blind composer Torlock O'Carolan, who is buried in the local cemetery. I first met Mickey Boland when our eldest child started in the Kilmactranny National School. Mickey was the school's caretaker and prided himself in keeping all spick and span. He told me he himself attended the same school and my children's maternal great-grandmother, Mrs McDonough, had taught him there. He said she was a great music teacher and it was her who first told the young child that he could sing. 
Every Friday, Mrs MacDonald would take out the tuning fork and give it a rap against the desk before calling out Mickey Boland. The child would jump up immediately and hit the note. It was the best day of the week. Another blind composer and musician, Josie McDermott, used to ramble into Mickey's home to sing and play. And when Mickey was 14 years of age, Josie suggested he should compete in the Ballyfarnan Fesh. Josie gave Mickey two songs, told him to learn them well and present himself in good time. When Mickey told me the story 66 years later, he was still as excited about the outcome as if it was yesterday. One of the judges told him, you have a voice you can humour any way you like. And she gave him 80 marks out of 100. He said that gave him the confidence he needed to sing in public and he never stopped. In 1992, when Josie McDermott was on his last days, Mickey went to visit him. The renowned composer and musician was very low and told Mickey his time had come and soon he'd be gone and forgotten. Mickey was taken aback. He told Josie there wasn't a word of truth in what he said and that he himself would never forget his great mentor and friend and would speak his name daily and tell young people always what a great composer Josie McDermott was. They weren't idle words. I heard him do it with young children starting in Kilmactranny National School. The hard-working caretaker whom they all grew so fond of would tell them about Josie McDermott who lived just over the fields. It was much later in life that Mickey discovered he could dance too. And when he did, his August by holiday Mondays would never be the same. He was in his 60s before he entered the door dancing competition in Kiju and he skipped away home with a trophy. It meant a world to him. And I'm not sure if he ever competed in Kiju again without bringing back some class of a cup because the people at the O'Carlin Harp Festival understood well. Mickey Boland was in his 74th year when I spotted him one sunny July afternoon browsing a shoe rack outside Bowles' of Boyle. I knew well he was preparing for Kiju. Some days later, when I dropped up to see him, he confirmed my suspicions. There was a revival of Shano's dancing, he said, and all the young ones were at it. And he had these shoes that made great noise doing the door dancing. He was worried his trophy was under threat, so he was upping his armoury with new, noisy shoes. As the sun set on that bank holiday Monday, surrounded by tanned faces of farmers in cotton shorts and women in summer dresses, Mickey Boland gave it his all on the red door laid in the middle of the road and we all drank out of his cup in McCabe's bar afterwards. On New Year's Eve, as Mickey Boland was laid to rest in Kilmactranny Cemetery, two tin whistles were taken out. A square of wood was thrown on the ground, and one of those young teenagers, now a young woman, who Mickey had bought the shoes to compete against ten years ago, gave a fitting display in fine leather shoes of the revived art of Shano's dancing. He would have loved that. Thank you. 
It measures just 10 centimetres by 7 centimetres and has 11 pages between its blue and white covers. It doesn't look like much, but this tiny booklet details an 11,000 kilometre journey that I made nearly 35 years ago in September 1988. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Interrail Card, which itself was introduced to mark the 50th anniversary of the International Union of Railways, a railway standards body based in Paris that wanted to make rail travel across Europe easy. Intended as a once-off, it became so successful that it is now a permanent feature of the life of Europeans, with over 10 million young people interrailing over the last 50 years. This year, 300,000 are taking part in this annual European internal migration. Among them is my son. Filling the blank spaces of my little notebook around scribbled destinations with clips and stamps by conductors are a host of memories of places that I saw for the first time. Westminster in London, where I gave the two-fingered salute to the House of Commons for the wrongs done to landleaguer Michael Davitt. An Italian restaurant on the Tottenham Court Road, where I listened to the accents of the world. Lyon, through which I passed on a journey the length of France, where I remarked to one of my companions, this is fascinating, to be met with gentle mocking laughter. Monaco, where I found the hairpin turn made famous by the Grand Prix and walked past a beautiful woman showering topless after a dawn swim. Venice, where I got lost in the vexing maze of almost identical canal bridges. The River Danube in Vienna, which I was disappointed to discover wasn't blue. The majestic Hofburg Palace, the home of the Habsburg emperors, and where, in 1938, Adolf Hitler announced the incorporation of Austria into the Third Reich. Budapest with its cakes and a railway run by children, and where, at the summit of a hill on the Buddha side of the city, I was welcomed by Thin Lizzy's Whiskey in the Jar, blasting out over tannoy speakers. Then came what felt like an endless train journey through what was then Yugoslavia, a few years before it was torn apart by civil war, to Istanbul, the centre of the old Ottoman Empire and before that, the Byzantine Empire. At the tense crossing between Greece and Turkey, a border guard walked through our carriage, carrying a black bag into which we were instructed to put our passports. As we waited anxiously in the early hours for their return, a discussion with an English traveller about the Birmingham Six became an argument that culminated in him jumping to his feet and standing over me shouting, are you calling the English justice system corrupt? I answered yes. I thought of him and presumed he thought of me the following year when the Birmingham Six were released unconditionally. Passports returned, our journey recommenced and a few hours later we were woken by a conductor shouting Istanbul! Istanbul! I was one of the first to get up to watch the beauty of the sight as the train skirted the shores of the Sea of Marmara on its arrival. In this half-Asian, half-European city, there was the Blue Mosque, the Hagia Sophia, an unnerving boat trip on the Vosporus amongst Soviet oil tankers, the perfection of a Turkish haircut and shave, and sitting at the Galata Bridge listening to the exotic sounds around me. Next up was Athens, followed by a speculative journey through the length of Italy, across the south of France, to Barcelona. 
I went to Barcelona because I had met two Catalan sisters, Anna and Clara Cuadras Roca, in Dublin, and they said I should visit them when I went interrailing. I didn't tell them I was coming, and I wasn't sure they'd be there, but chance travelling from the other side of the continent to a city that was far less widely visited at that time, four years before hosting the 1992 Olympics. I'd envisaged an industrial port, high-rise apartment blocks, tacky beaches. But Barcelona's vibrancy and architecture immediately gripped me. It was a city that made sense to me. I subconsciously understood its layout. From the backs of Anna and Clara's motorbikes, I saw their city. Gaudi, Las Ramblas, Montjuic, Plaza Catalunya, and the villages of Saria and Gracia. It was during the Marseille Festival, the Catalan national holiday, the highlight of which was the Carafoc, or fire runs of devils shooting fireworks from tridents at water-soaked crowds shouting no Pazaran. Since then, I've been a supporter of Barcelona Football Club. And then I returned home. Much of the interrailing experience is tedious. Waiting for trains, sitting on trains, getting off trains, finding accommodation. But over the course of that 11,000 kilometre journey, through the continent's history, landscapes, cultures, cities, cuisines and languages, I became a European. I remain one today. And I think those people who introduced interrailing in 1972 would be pretty pleased with that. When you get older, and I'm now on the threshold of retirement, nostalgia is an unavoidable and probably a necessary condition. You don't have to be a devotee of the good old days syndrome or an art sentimentalist to savour memories of bygone times. I don't suppose that many people do this anymore, but I had the habit of cutting out articles that interested me. I was not systematic enough to tuck such pieces neatly into folders for careful retention. They tended to lie around aimlessly until they went the way of all discarded things. But sometimes I slipped a cutting into a book, and there it could nestle for years, even decades, unread and neglected, but still in the land of the living. I was reminded of the preservative powers of old books recently when I picked up a battered paperback anthology of Irish poetry edited by Derek Mann and published in 1972. I probably bought this volume during my student days at UCC. It retailed for all of 40 pence, which is another illustration of how radically different those times were. As I flicked through its pages in search of a poem for my daily Irish poetry tweet, out popped a yellowed newspaper cutting. It was undated and appeared to come from a British newspaper, probably The Observer, which was one of my Sunday reads when I returned to Dublin in 1983 for my first overseas assignment in New Delhi. I cannot be sure of this, but my suspicion is that I kept this cutting because it spoke to three of my lifelong enthusiasms, literature, history and sport. The essay in question was written by Ulick O'Connor, a prominent personality in the Ireland of my youth, and among other things, a regular contributor to Gay Byrne's Late Late Show, which was deemed compulsory viewing by my mum and dad back in the day. 
O'Connor had been an accomplished student sportsman and in a colourful career produced poetry, biography, literary criticism and sports journalism. He wrote a book about another all-rounder, the sportsman, senator, surgeon and writer, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, who was the inspiration for the character Buck Mulligan in Ulysses. In my rediscovered cutting, O'Connor writes about a school friend of James Joyce's, a barrister named William Fallon, who called to see Joyce in Paris in 1923 while visiting the city for an Ireland-France rugby international. Joyce's visitor was surprised to learn that the famous author had attended the same rugby match and was an enthusiastic supporter of the men in green. After his return to Dublin, Fallon began to receive letters from Joyce containing excerpts from Finnegan's Wake. This caused him considerable puzzlement, until Eudic O'Connor examined those passages where he found Joyce's elusive prose studded with rugby references, including to two Irish players, the Colopy brothers. Dublin-born Bill Colopy won 19 Irish rugby caps as a prop between 1914 and 1924. His brother Dick, also a prop, appeared 13 times between 1923 and 1925. The Colopy brothers propped down together a number of times, including in Paris, when James Joyce was an eager spectator and could later name all of those who had lined out for Ireland that day. Joyce had evidently been impressed with the Colopy brothers, for they make an appearance in Finnegan's Wake as the two St. Colopies, where they are part of a swarm of words associated with their sport. Joyce, for example, wrote about the rugby moon commuliously god-rolling himself west to sleep amongst the cloud scrums. It must be said that saintliness is not a quality normally associated with rugby props. Dick Colopy died in 1972 and would surely have been amazed had he known of his walk-on part in the word scrimmage that is Joyce's final blast on his literary whistle. He might be even more surprised to find his name tumbling out of one of my books 50 years after his death. Meanwhile, my aged newspaper cutting has returned to the safety of its modest nest on my bookshelf, ready to be stumbled upon again by some collector of inexpensive old books in the future's added time. I like to think of Bill and Dick Colopy togging out one more time for the amusement and edification of someone somewhere. All done for another year and for the 28th time in a row, Down didn't win Sam Maguire. But as the essayist Alexander Pope wrote back in the 1730s in his Essay on Man, hope springs eternal. So he must have been a down man. We might win it next year and then again we might not. As the great and good of the GA world would inevitably say, ah sure, look it. I have to admit that's all I know about Alexander Pope and it comes from one of those brilliant little compendiums of knowledge that you keep in the smallest room in the house. I've had mine for years, it's dog-eared at this stage but I'm always loath to throw it out because it's such a good book. Every home 
should have one. Full of wise words and quotations from great writers, plots of classic novels that you're never going to read, and bits of poems, ideal for a short visit, if you know what I mean. If you want to know what Of Mice and Men is about, or The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, without getting too bogged down, this book is the one. And so, installed behind a locked door, in the peace and quiet of the loo, I found myself reading the plot of Dante's Inferno. The two-page summary of the 15th century Italian classic, anyway, about how Dante, the pilgrim, lost midway in life's journey, travels on an odyssey of redemption through these various terraces or circles of hell to eventually something better. I like the sound of that. And it's made me think I might just give the real thing a go. I mean the book, not the journey, obviously. But I think I might have caught a glimpse of one of those circles myself. Half past seven, one sunny morning, on the road from Bologna to Florence, I pulled off the autostrada to a service station. Hadn't eaten anything, but I just needed a pick-me-up, so one of those wee, strong, sweet Italian coffees would just do the job. Semplice. Not a bother, as the Italians would say. Inside was cool, an instant relief from the stifling heat, but up the stairs, where the sandwiches, croissants and coffee was served to a heaving mass of humanity, that's where Dante's Renaissance vision was alive and well in the 21st century, as I was to discover. The sandwiches were various combos of ham, salami, cheese, tuna and chicken, but the croissants, or cornetti, as they call them, were a sight to behold. In France, you can have a fresh, soft, buttery croissant with jam or one with an almond paste and some ice and sugar. But Italy has taken that simple idea and run with it to the point where you can have your cornetto injected with apricot jam or chocolate or pistachio cream or custard or even dipped in pink ice and sugar. I mean, what's Italian for gilding the lily. Anyway, I chose my ham and cheese sandwich and I fought my way through the crowd to pay for it until I reached the till where I asked for a cappuccino and a croissant as well. But hold your cavalli, big lad. This wasn't the queue for the coffee. I was told this is only the queue for the sandwiches. So she gave me a ticket for a coffee and pointed me towards the other side of the room. And what about the croissant then? I said, "Ah, that was another queue. Anyway, I couldn't hear myself think. I backed up against the crowd, knocking two children over, who in fairness to myself weren't looking. I turned and waded my way through this crowd of noisy, hungry Italians. And for all the horrors that Dante the Pilgrim encountered on his journey through the circles of hell, I bet you he never accidentally stood on a wee black dog in front of its owner in an Italian motorway service station. After I finally got the croissant, It was straight over to join the third queue of hell, where I elbowed my way in close to the counter, waved my coffee ticket, and miraculously this time was served almost instantly, much to the annoyance of the Italian woman next to me who remonstrated to me something about terza volta, which I think meant she'd tried three times to get served, and then Johnny Irishman here had just waltzed in and got cappuccinoed right under her nose. But you snooze, you lose. And so... Armed with sandwich, fancy croissant and a small cappuccino, 
I ascended out of that particular circle of hell a changed person and outside found that better place and the redemption that Dante described in the hum of motorway traffic and the wall of heat. Like a lot of people, I've spent the national day in some strange surroundings. Once in Broken Hill in the Australian outback, once in San Francisco sitting with ageing hippies in Union Square, once in the outpatient's ward of a hospital, often in London doing the great round of convivial receptions. But the most exotic of all was three years ago. I was invited to speak at a dinner in Abu Dhabi, There's a St. Patrick's Society there, as there is almost everywhere else on earth, and they ask someone to say a few words each year. Well, I was delighted with the chance of saying a few words somewhere nice and hot and on the seashore, somewhere that I might never get another chance of visiting. So I accepted like a flash before they could change their minds. Now, it did cross my mind that Abu Dhabi might be a dry sort of place, not only in terms of weather, but when it came to a matter of something convivial in a glass. But I decided to be strong and not to ask. It showed too much of a dependency, if I were to say in a casual voice over the phone, uh, there will uh, be something to drink, won't there? No, I would not allow my enthusiasm for a glass of wine to take over. It's a long way to Abu Dhabi, around eight hours on a plane, and it was dark night when I arrived at the huge showpiece airport. There was a little committee grand laid-back Irish expats, all involved in oil or building or trade in the tiny state. And they were enthusiastic about the place. It was a good life there, they said. And in the dark, hot night, the roads seemed wide and the cars that passed were huge Mercedes or Chevys. The hotels were enormous with gigantic foyers, a line of lights along the coast with high, high buildings. Thirty years ago, there was nothing but sand here, with the waves lapping on the shore. The big St. Patrick's Day dinner and dance was going to be in the hotel where I was staying, which was nice and handy, or so you might think. But the Abu Dhabians liked their hotels with long corridors and very, very splendid spacious public rooms, and I felt that I had walked to neighbouring Dubai by the time I got to the ballroom. I was glad I hadn't asked about the drink, because there at the doorway stood waiters with a St. Patrick's Day cocktail, champagne glasses with little creme de menthe in them, a sparkling green drink for a hot St. Patrick's night. There were about 300 guests, not all of them Irish. Many Irish people had invited their neighbours or colleagues or friends. The Irish ambassador couldn't be there because he has several of the various emirates in his portfolio and it was somewhere else's turn for him that year. But the British ambassador was, though. He said he loved going to functions like this because he felt he was a unifying force in a way. He sort of channelled everyone's attitudes into a funnel of discontent with them so that any Irish differences could be ironed out. He said that he even further confused things by being a Catholic with a large number of children. It upset all the stereotypes. 
The first toast of many toasts that night was to Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nahan. It was the most unexpected person whose health I have ever drunk to on the national day, but apparently a person for whom the Irish community had a lot of time. He was head not only of Abu Dhabi, they said proudly, but also of all the Emirates. There was a day each week when people could come and ask him for a favour, and he would almost always grant it. Well, this seemed a fine kind of ruler. I sat happily wondering what favour I would ask him. It was like being given a wish in a fairy story. But then it was pointed out to me that he didn't give favours to visitors, only to native Abu Dhabi people, so that was that. And the Irish of Abu Dhabi said it was a great place to live. They sometimes went out golfing, but you had to bring little green mats and put them down each time you hit the ball, because the whole course was pure sand. And they don't have that amazing emerald green golf course like Dubai has, where millions and millions of gallons of water are pumped onto it every day. But they said you could go to the races in Abu Dhabi, camel races that is, and they were a good day out. Or down to the souks for a bit of a bargain, or maybe up and down the coast in a boat for a sunset cruise, that was a good thing to do. And then there was a demonstration of the Irish dancing by the children, three reels, and full Irish dancing gear was worn by everyone. And a special Irish band called the Cool Notes from Donegal had been imported. And under the suntanned faces and pinned to the suntanned bosoms of the Irish community, the shamrock bounced around the huge dance hall under the forty almighty chandeliers. In the summer of that year, the Irish community was a bit dispersed by the first rumblings of the Gulf War. And when the war began in earnest in January 1991, a few of them left for a while. But apparently it's all as you were. And today, St Patrick's Day is already well advanced for them because they're four hours ahead of us. And it's an ordinary working day. We can't really expect the United Arab Emirates to grind to a halt just for our saint. But I'm sure that tonight there'll be a green cocktail and a great gathering. And the stamina will be extraordinary. And they will dance until four in the morning. And then go home for a couple of hours before the muezzin calls out from the minarets and the sun comes up over the palm trees and the white sands. On this morning's programme we heard The Perseids by Margaret Hickey, Mickey Boland by Brian Farrell, Interrailing was by Tim Carey, Cutting into the Colopies by Daniel Mulhall and Dante on the Motorway by John Toll. And from the Sunday Miscellany Archive, St. Patrick's Day in Abu Dhabi by Maeve Binchy. The music was Evening Star by Schumann, played by Julian Lloyd Webber on cello. Two Reels by Josie McDermott on flute and Tommy Flynn on fiddle. McFadden's and the Blackberry Blossom. Vienna by Billy Joel. Bloomin' Lied by Gustav Lang, played on piano by Ralph Ritchie. And O Sole Mio by Giovanni Capuro played by the Bulgarian National Radio Symphony Orchestra. Daniel Mulhall is the outgoing Irish ambassador to the United States. His latest book is Ulysses, a reader's odyssey, published by New Island. This morning's edition of Sunday Miscellany was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The series producer is Sarah Binchy and the broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. You can find highlights from Sunday Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.